0: Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's Western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this episode's random fact about Cologne, during World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918. The population of Cologne suffered more and more from hunger, especially meat was in short supply. In 1916, the then deputy mayor of Cologne, Konrad Adenauer, probably invented the world's first partly veggie sausage because of the need. What is considered today a trendy food met with much astonishment at that time. The sausage consisted of a firm topping of soy and spices, thus not at all dissimilar to today's region sausages. The only blemish? This sausage still had a not inconsiderable amount of meat. In this way it should be possible to produce more sausage with less meat. It went down in history as Kölner Wurst, Cologne sausage, so to speak. The people of Cologne themselves called it Adenauer sausage, and Adenauer himself called it Friedenswurst, sausage of peace. Ironically, Adenauer could not patent his invention in Germany. However, he was granted a patent by Germany's wartime enemy, Great Britain. On June 28, 1918, Ardenau received his patent issued by King George V. The war between Germany and Great Britain was still in full swing then. The patent bore the beautiful long German title, Verfahren zur Geschmacksverbesserung von Eiweißreicher und fetthaltiger Pflanzenmehlen und zur Herstellung von Wurst, roughly translated in English, Process for Improving the Taste of High Protein and Fatty Vegetable Flours and for the Production of Sausage. Germany denied Adenauer his patent by saying the sausage did not comply with the German food regulations of the time. However, the sausage was not very successful but its inventor would be. Conrad Arner was appointed Lord Mayor of Cologne in 1917, one year after he invented this sausage, and thus began an amazing career. And we will of course talk about him when we have arrived at some point in the 20th century with this podcast. Just as a small spoiler, even today, 50 years after his death, he still ranks first in almost all surveys when asked the question, "Who?" is the greatest German of all time. So much for that, let's hit the intro. A storm is coming over Europe. From the second half of the fourth century, an unprecedented danger is approaching from the east. The Huns invade Europe. This once Central Asian nomadic people rides horses perfectly. And now they push west and south from the rivers Volga and Don. No matter whether Roman or barbarian, Christian or pagan, these Huns are warriors that no one has ever seen before. On their way, the Huns burn everything down. Especially the East Germanic tribes in today's Central Europe like the Goths and the Vandals flee from them in droves. And so the refugees inevitably reach the borders of the Roman Empire. The Romans cannot withstand the pressure of these masses of people. Because of this barbarian storm, or rather this migration of peoples, Rome will eventually perish. Oh no, is this another excursion into Roman history? Well, this is what you will read almost every time you read a history book about that epoch. And you probably know what I am going to say now. Of course, the facts about the time of the migration of peoples are much more complex than describing it as the late antique apocalypse just described here. And no, I am not going to go into this in depth. But you are welcome to do that yourself, and probably you should do that. There are also great podcasts on this topic, the time of the migration of peoples, Huns, Goths, the Battle of Adrianople, etc. I will gladly put the corresponding links into the show notes. The time of the migration of peoples is one of the greatest epochal changes in the history of Europe. And yet this sentence is again wrong in several respects. How can this be? The term migration of peoples originates from the 18th and 19th century and the historians who lived at that time. And this is not at all judgmental. But these historians were, of course, also children of that time. And in the emerging nationalism had a research focus on everything ...that can somehow be connected with peoples and the development of nations. Mutually speaking, nationalism is an ideology that seeks to find an identification and solidarity of all members of a people. But there has never been such a thing as ethnically homogeneous people in ancient times. The term migration of peoples itself has therefore now been refuted. No complete peoples migrated during this period... The people who set out during this time were mostly heterogeneous groups of people of different origins or had only emerged as such shortly before. The region around Cologne is a good example. It was not the Franks who attacked Cologne and the surrounding area, but a few Franks. Likewise, with the permission of the Romans, some Franks settled in the Cologne lowland and other parts of Gaul. Other Franks, continue to stay on the right side of the Rhine. Nevertheless, I will continue to use the term migration period, because no better term has come under my nose so far. So dive with me into the time of the migration period, the time from 375 to about 570. Because not only in the far east of the Roman Empire people are experiencing the effects of this time. Our cologne on the Rhine, we'll also soon realize that significant upheavals are about to take place. So much for this historiographical excursion at the beginning of a podcast, which is actually dedicated to the history of Cologne. Let us look back to the Rhine. Cologne at the time of the migration period. To keep it very short, in the early phase of the migration period, Cologne is actually very lucky in the years 375 to 400, The federations of barbarian invaders like the Vandals, Visigoths, Arlans, etc. mostly pass South of Cologne. And in far away regions South of Cologne like the Balkans, Italy, Gaul, Spain and even to North Africa. As I said, if you want to know more about this, please check out the podcast I linked in the show notes. As so often in this epoch, we can usually only find out how a city looked around the year 400 through archaeology. But in one case we are lucky and can't fall back on a written source. Even if it is really only short mention in a written source quasi as a list entry. In the so-called Notitia Galliarum, Cologne is listed as Civitas Agrippinentium. The Notitia Galliarum is a Roman state manual compiled around the year 400. It lists the 17 Gallic provinces with a total of 150 municipalities, what a word in English, 7 fortresses and a port. Just as a hint again, Cologne was considered a Gallic city because it was located on the left bank of the Rhine. Despite the many Germanic influence on the spot, the settlement by the Ubi 450 years earlier and the fact that Germanic tribes had always lived on the left bank of the Rhine as well. But that was the Roman view of the world since Caesar, so Cologne is a Gallic city. The mere fact that Cologne is mentioned in this state manual shows that it was still an important Roman city, despite the plundering and the brief conquest by the Franks in the year 355. It is also interesting that in contrast to Mainz, the capital of the Roman neighboring province Germania Prima of Cologne, no information is given about the stationing of Roman troops here in Cologne. This strengthens the assumption that already allied military units of the Franks, who settled in the Roman Rhineland in the Cologne lowland, took over the military defense for the Romans as allies. Formerly, however, the civil Roman authorities in Cologne and the province remained the commanders of these Frankish units. This created an interesting symbiosis that was to become important for the future of the region. The Franks in Roman service provided military security. The Gallo-Roman provincial population which continued to represent the overwhelming majority of the people in the province, took over the civil task, maintenance of the infrastructure, trade, etc. Especially the Franks here in the Cologne lowland were to learn to appreciate Roman culture through their service in the Roman army. Especially as far as Christianity was concerned. But well, we will come to that later in this podcast, because the Franks, up until this point, are still pagan believers in the Germanic gods like Thor and Odin. You might know them from a very famous movie company. We owe many archaeological findings from this period to the not few construction sites in Cologne city center over the past decades. The Heumark, which is German for Haymarket, a large square in Cologne's old town directly on the Rhine opposite of Deutz, was extensively investigated by archaeologists in the late 1990s. The planned construction of an underground car park was used as an opportunity to archaeologically investigate the square's subsoil, with many valuable findings which will also find room in our podcast from time to time. Already in ancient times, today's large square of the Heumarkt, the Haymarket, was located in the southern part of Roman cologne By the way, it is not very far away from the Ubia monument, which we talked about in detail in an earlier episode of this podcast. Here alone, from this time, the early 5th century, a 100-meter-long building was uncovered. Well, the foundations of it, not the whole building, of course. Such buildings could only have two purposes, either military or economic. Evidence of brisk construction activity, therefore, contradicts the thesis of a city going downhill. During this period, again... The Cardo Maximus, today's Straße, Cologne's important north-south main road in Roman times, was renewed. Further archaeological excavations from this period show that, despite all the crises, Roman Cologne was still a functioning Roman urban structure. For this purpose, I want to list two people from this time who made their mark on Cologne. The Frank Arbogast and the Gallo-Roman Severin, or Severin in English, I guess. Let us start with Arbogast, and sorry, that is really his name, Arbogast. I have no idea how I can pronounce this Germanic name in English. Arbogast was the military commander of the Roman armies in all of Gaul since the year 388. The same position that Silvanus had held in the fateful year of 355. The Frank Arbogast was thus the commander-in-chief of the Roman army in all of Gaul, and thus also for Cologne. An inscription by him, which must have been made sometime between 392 and 394, testifies that under his rule a large public building in Cologne, which could not be identified any further yet, was subjected to a construction project. What kind of building it was, was it perhaps a thermal bath or the Praetorium itself maybe? That is not known. But the important thing for us is that the Roman administration in Cologne was still active here at the end of the 4th century. Avogust himself was a good example for many Franks at that time in the region. He himself was a Frank, but he had devoted himself entirely to the cause of Rome. In Roman services he commanded almost all of Western Europe, as the Roman army commander of Gaul. If he had stayed on the right bank of the Rhine, what would have expected him? Perhaps he would have made it to the head of a Frankish petty kingdom, which he would have had to defend at all times against external and internal Frankish rivals. No thank you. Then rather the service for Rome as a powerful army commander of the West. And thus, Arbogast, a Frank after all, also stood up to those very Franks who settled on the right side of the Rhine and were in part hostile to Rome. He clearly showed his loyalty to Rome in the year 388, when he bloodily repulsed the Frankish invasion to Gaul and secured Rome's Rhine border again. The fact that he also placed building orders, as the previous inscription Cologne informed us, shows that Arbogast was powerful enough to overcome even the separation between military and civil power that was actually intended in late antiquity in the Roman Empire. I would like to emphasize the obvious again here. It was now a Germanic Frank who provided security with largely Germanic troops here on the northern borders of the Roman Empire. For the Roman central power, with its capital in Milan, not in Rome anymore, was probably no longer able to do so. I find that extremely remarkable. Five centuries of Roman-Germanic relations had undergone enormous change. From being exotic foreigners, the Germanic tribes had now become supporting pillars of the Empire. And at the same time, there were Germanic tribes and federations attacking this Roman Empire. And this shows that history is often much more complicated than expected. This development did not remain without traces. The Roman emperors of that time, at least here in the western part of the empire, became more and more symbolic figureheads. The military commanders like Augustus came more and more to the fore. De facto... Arbogast was thus the ruler of the Western Roman Empire, and not the emperor of the time, Valentinian II, who resided in Milan. In 392, this emperor tries rather badly than right to disempower Arbogast. Without joking, he sends Arbogast a letter of resignation. He didn't even have the guts to tell him that personally. As a reaction... Abogas came to that emperor and tore up the letter in front of his emperor's eyes and mocked him. You have neither given me the power, nor can you take it from me. This also shows the self-image of these military commanders. It will also be important for the future development of Western Europe. A short time later, Emperor Valentinian II is found hanged in his room. Whether insidious murder or suicide out of desperation over his own powerlessness, Either way, Arbogast had had an influence on the end of this powerless emperor with the name of Valentinian II. But now Arbogast did not dare to proclaim himself emperor. As a Frank, he saw no great chance to take the throne himself. As a German, he was probably still too exotic for the Romanized population of the Western Empire. Rather, Arbogast would raise a new emperor of Roman origin on his own authority for the Western part of the empire, which he, like Valentinian before, had under complete control. A puppet with Arbogast as the puppet master. But even military commanders did not live safer than emperors. In the year 394, Arbogast took his own life when the emperor of the eastern part of the Roman Empire came to Italy with his army. And this emperor was not so powerless like the western emperor of the Roman Empire. This emperor with the name Theodosius I ended the policy of religious freedom of Arbogast's appointed emperor in the west, who had even allowed paganism again. Theodosius, a Christian, eliminated the emperor in the western part of the empire and made Christianity the state religion once and for all. All other faiths were forbidden from now on. Arbogast was history. But we have a famous Cologne man from that time who was a friend of Arbogast. Bishop Severin of Cologne. Severin is one of the first Christian bishops of Cologne that we know of. And yes, we already had one, Maternos. And similar to this predecessor, Bishop Maternos, we know far too little about Bishop Severin. Severin was probably born in Cologne as a Gallo Roman in 348. Other sources even claim that he was born 20 years earlier. It is probably not possible to say for sure. Interestingly, the day of his death itself, the church names October the 9th, but without mentioning the year. Severin probably died sometime after the year 400. Why do I assume that? Well, we will get to that. That we know so little about Bishop Severin is regrettable, for he lived in an extremely eventful time. He must whether, as a child or young adult, have witnessed the Frankish invasion of the city in the year 355 and the one-year rule. The Christian religion, which had only recently become legal in the Roman Empire, was in an important phase of transformation during his lifetime. Would Christianity succeed in establishing a central organizational structure, or would it split off into many small denominations? Which was not only a thing since Martin Luther in the 16th century, nor the church was always splitting up. Then the invasion of the Huns into the Roman Empire from the end of the 4th century, which for three generations was to shake the late antique world. Similar to Bishop Montaunus, Severin's predecessor, we actually only know one single experience from his life. It happened in the year 397, more precisely on Sunday, November 8th, 397. Bishop Severin, of course, did what a good Christian and priest would do on a Sunday. He went to a church service. He celebrated several masses in the city that day. At that time, the number of churches in Cologne was still manageable, so he could visit all the churches in the city on a single day. And probably held a mass there each time. Certainly, he also went to the church of St. Gerion outside the city walls. On the way to a holy place, which Severin wanted to visit after a church service, the churchman suddenly stopped. What is the matter with you, Excellency, one of the priests who were traveling with him asked the bishop. Why are you stopping? Yes, but aren't you listening, replied Severin. What would we hear, replied the priests in the crowd. Yes, the voices, listen. It sounds like singing. But when Severin looked into the faces of the others, he understood. Only he could hear the singing. It sounded like a perfect choir singing to him, telling him some news. Then Severin understood that he had received a divine sign. Bishop Martin has just returned to the Lord at this very moment, Severin said to his companions. Bishop Martin is dead? But Excellency, how can that be? How can you know this already? Bishop Martin is staying near the city of Tours, which is deepest Gaul, even if he had just died. Even the fastest messenger would take days to bring the news to us on the Rhine. A choir of angels has just told me personally. Bishop Martin has just died. Their saying has accompanied his soul to heaven, Severin said. And indeed, a few days later the news arrived in Cologne that Bishop Martin of Tours had died. The very bishop we know today as Saint Martin. He is famous for his mercy towards a beggar in winter, who was terribly cold. Without further ado, Martin, at that time still a Roman soldier and not yet a bishop, cut his military coat in half and gave this half to the beggar. The following night, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. The Son of God also appeared to him almost undressed, with one exception. He was wearing half the coat that Martin had given this beggar the day before. Besides this traditional story, Martin was one of the most powerful bishops of early Christianity in late antiquity. Above all, he promoted the missionary work of the people of Gaul in the countryside, both for the Gallic Romans and the Franks. Whereby this was not always done with quite decent means, Martin liked to have pagan temples and altars destroyed. Already during his lifetime, Martin was so respected among Christians that Severin, who heard the death of his bishop colleague in faraway Cologne, can probably be considered a committed churchman, at least according to this story and tradition. For as historians, we must of course, always critically examine the sources. All this, which you just heard, is supposed to have happened in the year 397 but was written down only scarcely 200 years later by Gregor of Tours in the 6th century. And you can guess by the name of Gregor of Tours that he was a successor of Martin of Tours. Well, 200 years. Over 200 years of distance. Severin himself felt in the next few years after this incident that his life was also coming to an end. He travels back to his hometown Bordeaux in France, It is not known whether he gave up his bishopric in Cologne, which is actually not possible under church law. In general, as so often in late antiquity, the sources are extremely thin. Perhaps Severin was also the Bishop of Bordeaux at the same time. From today's point of view of church law, it is of course not possible to administer two dioceses at once, but in the early Christian period, many rules in the church were not quite as fixed as they are today or in later times. The church also had other problems to deal with at that time, like the ever-threatening division of the church. But theology is really not the topic of our podcast for this time. Severin died not long after the year 400 in Bordeaux. Immediately after his death, he was canonized like his bishop colleague Martin, becoming a saint. His body was then brought to Cologne, so outside of the city of Cologne, which was custom at that time. Although according to Christian custom, it was still in the Roman tradition to place the grave close to the southern highway between Cologne and Bonn, where many other numerous grave sites were located. Incidentally, the Publizius tomb had been built nearby 350 years earlier, which we also discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast. Here in the south, in front of the Roman city wall, Severin himself had a christian memorial hall built and consecrated during his lifetime and as a bishop of cologne This memorial hall was later to become a collegiate church, which of course was named after st. Severin himself and around this church itself one of the most beautiful old quarters of cologne should develop then as now the severin quarter we will certainly get enough of this quarter It deserves more than just a few subordinate clauses. I lived really close to it, so that's why I'm rooting for it. But the early 5th century is unfortunately not yet the right time for this. The bones of St. Severin are now in the reliquary of the church of the same name in the district of the same name. Don't you sometimes ask yourself the question, whether the person you think is really in there in this box Well, in 1999, we wanted to know a little more precisely. They opened the shrines, and the bones were examined. Of course, there is no absolute certainty. But the bones in the radicari belong to a man who, according to scientific research, died around the year 400. The silk in which the bones were wrapped also dates back to the year 400. An analysis of a tooth root showed that the man had been around... Fifty-five years. Well, that would fit too. Fifty-five years was a high age at that time. It may surprise, but sometimes even I, Historian or not, don't want to know everything so precisely. A completely disenchanted world without secrets would be so boring, wouldn't it? So I leave it to you to decide whether you want to believe this or not let's leave it here for today. Be there again next time, when the Roman era of the city of Cologne increasingly fades away. Because the year 400 marks the last 50 years of Roman rule on the Rhine. And before we start into this eventful time, we should start with another very famous, perhaps the most famous saga of Cologne. The legend of Saint Ursula who is captured by none other than Attila the Hun in front of the gates of Cologne. And we will get to that story in the next episode. So stay true to me, recommend me to others and as always, auf Wiedersehen.